0: You've marked in number 226, as Brother Randall has asked us to do, I would ask that you would think with me about the tenth lesson in this series of lessons concerning the church. We began this series back on the first Sunday in the month of January. And as we arrive at the 10th installment of that series this evening, it'll be the concluding lesson of that series. As we've studied it, it has throughout, in fact, been our hope and our guide, perhaps to state it in matters like I have expressed on that screen. Human words truly fail to describe the greatness of the Lord's Church. As you and I look at what the Holy Spirit has written, those are His words. They are His descriptions. They are His eternal and inspired means of characterizing that blessed body. You and I are privileged beyond measure to contemplate it, to be members of it, and as we've studied it, perhaps each of us have been drawn closer to a deeper appreciation of it, to a greater understanding of the eternal purpose which that church serves. As we think of the Pippin congregation here and other faithful congregations of whom we're aware, truly we might well consider how myriad and multitudes will be able to enter that glorious climb of heaven, having learned the truth, having been exposed to it, and been challenged to march onward by virtue of the Lord's body. In this tenth installment, the discussion of fellowship is what will rest before our minds over the next few moments. I would encourage you to think with me a bit about the character of fellowship, what that means, what it does not mean, and to use the scriptures to help us tie together some thoughts and ideas that maybe will clarify our understanding about God's intent concerning fellowship. You and I live in a world in an an age where fellowship, if we might so say, is rather misunderstood. Quite often fellowship is defined in human terms, and human terms set the boundaries of it. When all the while we must ever remember that with regard to the church, all things about it, including its fellowship, must be guided by a thus saith the Lord, must be explicitly arranged for you and me, and we must never go beyond those bounds which God has delineated concerning the fellowship of his body. With those things stated, might we begin with a definition, what is fellowship, and from there look at some passages that would help us understand the nature of that fellowship that we enjoy in Christ. The Greek word that is translated fellowship, it does occur many times in the New Testament. It is the word koinonia, and as that word occurs, you might notice that it means a sharing. It means a partnership. Furthermore, it is a recognition of a joint participation, a close mutual relationship. I suspect each of us, at least in mind, would have had something like that if we had been asked to define it. And so we note, then, that the New Testament word is not describing something that's completely foreign to our degree of understanding, but the notion of that close relationship, the characteristic of that sharing, what is it that's shared? Who is it that governs that relationship? Might we even ask it this way. As one considers those ideas, note the very first part, a partnership. The very thought then that the Bible would describe a partnership with God, the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, creator and ruler of all things, it thus is possible, perhaps, to enter into a partnership with Him, a relationship with Him, That alone transcends nearly the capability of my mind and yours. But yet the God of heaven, as he created man, desired to have a relationship with him. Do we not remember that in the very outset, when he created Adam and Eve there in the garden of Eden and brought them to that location... We do read in the Genesis the third chapter that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He enjoyed a relationship with these sinless beings who were made in His image and in His likeness. Genesis 1.26, Genesis 5 verse 2. However, it was man who, by virtue of his participation in sin, his violation of God's will, who tarnished and marred that relationship. It was not God that did so. By virtue of man's sin and man's transgression of God's will, that fellowship was severed. It was broken. Thus, the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 onward is a precious and eternal record whereby God desires again to call man back to that relationship that he once enjoyed, that relationship pristine, pure, and whole with his Maker, his Creator. Isn't it amazing that from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, we have the culmination of that plan, whereas it came into being through the person of Christ and ultimately brought into reality that character of the church, and it is in that body that you and I can enjoy that fellowship that Adam and Eve lost. It's no wonder that this is a part, then, of our series of lessons, for fellowship is such an important idea, such a precious one at that. Notice, as I've listed some passages at the bottom of that particular slide of that screen, the first element that I thought we would consider is this. One of the aspects of fellowship is the fellowship that we enjoy with God. The very nature, as we've just mentioned, as God created Adam and Eve, as He desired to have that fellowship with them, Notice some passages, even from the New Testament era, that challenge us onward about that very idea. It is true, in fact, that the world in which we live may well often claim to enjoy a close union, a close relationship with God, but we must ever let God's words determine the extent of that. Notice what is said in John 14, 23. Who is it there that enjoys fellowship with God. Is it not the case that Jesus said, If any man hear my words and keep them, that my Father and I will come in and will abide or dwell with him? The very thought then of God abiding with you or with me or with any person, and there the Lord describes it. But he noticed it was conditioned, If any man hear my words and keep them. That fellowship, you see, is not promised to those who abide outside of that precious and divine extent of the will of God. But notice also, can we not say in Second Corinthians thirteen eleven, near the close of that last chapter of that book, we there read that may the God of heaven, may the God of peace be with you and abide with you. Isn't it fascinating that Paul's prayer, his urgent plea, his desire for those Corinthian brethren was that their fellowship with God would be complete, it would be whole, it would be something that could uplift them day by day. That will be all the more important as we return in a few moments and look at some other aspects of that church in Corinth. But to bring us to that point, notice also the book of 1 John. It may well be that no other book in the New Testament carries us to the height of the subject of fellowship any more than the book of First John. In the five chapters of that book, time and again, John the inspired writer calls us back to what it means to be a person in Christ, what it means to be in fellowship with him, and all the blessings that we gain by virtue of that fellowship. Notice in particular chapter three, verse twenty four Near the end of that chapter, 1 John 3, verse 24, "...and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. There is a mutual connection," he said again, "...he that keepeth his commandments abideth in him. And thus you and I abide in the word of God and in relationship with him." But John did not stop at that point. He went on to say, and he, namely God, abides in him. Doesn't that in fact strike within my mind and yours an incredible recognition? The thought that God abides with us day by day. Talk about a deep fellowship. Talk about a grand communion. It's one thing to commune with another human being, but to have God communing with us, to recognize his ever-present reality with us day by day. Notice also in 1 John 1 verse 3, in the opening stanza of this book, in fact, one of the first points that John made, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. If we merely pause there, John already has made mention of fellowship that Christians can share one amongst another, but the verse doesn't yet end at that point. For he says, and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You and I, in a very real way, enjoy koinonia with God and with his Son. That fellowship is truly remarkable. It is an amazing thing, to be sure. You and I can each list many blessings that the Bible reveals that you and I have by virtue of that fellowship. Ephesians 1, verse number 3. The inspired Apostle Paul there stated that we have and enjoy all spiritual blessings that are in heavenly places in Christ. The beauty and power of that fellowship. In fact, as one looks from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we see time and again how that those who did the way of God, following his commandments, enjoyed a heightened degree of fellowship and were blessed immensely. They enjoyed a tranquility and a peacefulness in this life. They enjoyed a sense of hope that could carry them beyond the grave to where things here were not overcomingly fearful to them. No wonder David could say in Psalm 56.11, I will not fear what man can do in me. He knew in which his trust had been placed. He knew the degree of fellowship that was to be had even in Old Testament days. May we ask then, dear friend, if David could enjoy that kind of fellowship and Christ had never come to earth yet, what kind of fellowship might we have access to today? What kind of blessing may we enjoy through that fellowship? To note one of the things about that, consider another aspect of that fellowship with me as well. For you see, in addition to the fellowship we enjoy with God, Consider for just a moment the fellowship we enjoy one with the other. Mutual fellowship between brothers and sisters in Christ. I've listed a few passages for our consideration. In John 13, on the very night prior to his crucifixion, the very Son of God, the one who knew all eternity, the one who understood the purpose and mission which he fulfilled by leaving heaven to give his life a ransom for many, Jesus on that occasion said a new commandment I give unto you. And that new commandment, he said that you love one another. Now that wasn't a new commandment, for he himself stated that. What he meant by that was it's one they hadn't so much been familiar with. That you love one another as I have loved you. He stated the same thing two chapters later in John fifteen twelve. To understand that extent, that degree of love... Think about how that was exemplified in that first century church. When that day of Pentecost had come, and when there were those who heard the preaching of Peter and the other apostles, and about 3,000 of them responded in faith and became members of the Lord's body that day. Isn't it interesting that in that chapter and two chapters later, we read of the difficulties that came into the region of Jerusalem, how that those who in fact had become Christians were somewhat destitute, Scripture says that they sold their possessions. They shared equally to keep up those who, in fact, did not have. Do we not gain a picture of the mutual bond of fellowship that that early church shared one with another? Paul labored at length to aid the set of congregations in the Judean area as he made that collection from the far distant regions of Macedonia Paul knew that that mutual sharing would edify the congregations of the Lord and it would make it stronger completely. But notice also some other texts in 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. we again encounter that statement where you and I are urged to realize that love is of God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. You and I are impressed with the thought that the first and greatest of all the commandments is to love God with all his being, Mark 12, verse 30. But then, second to that is to love one's neighbor as himself. We understand that that aspect of neighbor is any who are in need, but think about our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who we understand have that same desire to be pleasing and acceptable to God. Should not our heart be broken when we can help and fail to do so? That love, that fellowship that we share, truly it has a physical aspect. But know what else it also has within it. In Romans, 6, Romans 15, verses 6 and 7, we notice that you and I are encouraged to be of like-mind, single-minded, in our mutual recognition of the goodness of God and our following of His will. Thus, our fellowship has a spiritual understanding as well, doesn't it? No wonder our Bible study classes and our other things that help us to better understand this word are so vital, for that draws us into an even deeper fellowship one with another, as we each can strengthen, can aid, and can help one another to better appreciate God's divine revelation. That fellowship that we share is touched on also in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 through 14. As you read and think about those passages, notice the description is rather short statements that encourage us to do not be forgetful of the feeble-minded, do not be forgetful of those that are weak, do not, in fact, cast aside those who are downtrodden or afflicted. And yet Paul was writing that to the church in Thessalonica. Perhaps as he would write that to congregations today, he would encourage us to be drawn nearer in love one for another because that will be a strong testimony to those without, will it not? Quite often in our prayer, we pray collectively that God would aid us in our mutual respect and love for each other. And isn't that an appropriate prayer? That our fellowship, one with another, will be stronger and deepened? We understand that we each are on a journey, and that journey doesn't end at the grave. That journey, in fact, far transcends beyond that, and we look forward to a place, just as Abraham did, a city whose builder-maker is God. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 12 and following. Those ideas, perhaps in regard to fellowship, lead us to the last two I've listed. In Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, we, in light of our fellowship, actually have obligation one to another. Perhaps we each can be guilty of failing to understand that point, but note this with me. As the inspired writer begins, he says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Notice that let us, that's often the biblical way of asserting a commandment. In other words, we must or we ought to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. In fact, did we not see that exemplified in the life of Paul? Paul, he said, never would do anything that would cause his brother to stumble, that would in any way cast before him an essence of doubt or cause him to be drawn aside from his service to God. And so too, as you and I love one another and appreciate the Christian life, we too ought to consider one another and provoke, but not in a bad way, to provoke to love, to provoke to good works. We each may know of individuals who have an especial talent for provoking, but sometimes it isn't always provoking in the right way, is it? Maybe you know someone at work who knows just what to say and just the way to say it to get under your skin, and maybe you're miserable for the rest of the day. But notice that the Hebrew writer said our goal in terms of that is to encourage, to consider one another but not in ways of evil or in ways of even neutrality, but into love and good works. He went on in the next verse to list one especial example. He said, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And thus the personal question can then often be asked, If I choose to be absent from the services, if in that selection, Others are then able to see that I'm not present. Is my example to them one in which I provoke into love and into good works? Or is my example far more of one that seems to state, especially when they know that it has been a selection of mine, I wasn't absent because I had to be. I perhaps have put a stumbling block before them. They have not been strengthened but rather have been weakened by my choice. And isn't that a tragedy? The last verse of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul stated that it would never be the case in his life, and may it never be so in mine or yours either. This matter of fellowship in fact touches the obligations that we have not only to God, but also to each other. To list those takes us back to the 7th verse of 1 John 1. We noted a moment ago in verse 3 the word fellowship has already been employed. Let's notice the statement of this precious and penetrating text. On that occasion, again, the Apostle John said, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. That subject of fellowship that he had just opened in verse 3, he now draws it to a climax by saying, that fellowship we have is for those that walk in the light. It's for those who have given their life over to the life of the Master. And as such, they strive to the best of their capability to walk in a way that's pleasing, and in a way that, as you notice in that verse, is one descriptive of the word fellowship. Oh, this term is such, such a powerful one, isn't it? It has so much within it to guide our thinking. But the very the very thought of it, though, perhaps begs the following question. It's the one that I've listed there. What is the extent of Christian fellowship? Are there any limits or boundaries to it? Or should it be, in fact, granted to all whom we may know, our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances, Or does fellowship, in its description, be such that there is an extent beyond which we cannot grant it because God doesn't? In other words, as surely as we know that we, of course, live upon the earth with many individuals, and many choose not to follow the way of God, can we grant the blessing of Christian fellowship to those who do not walk according to the light, who do not, in fact, walk after the way of the Spirit, Romans 8, verse 1? That's worthy of some thought. As we begin that discussion, I might ask that you would think with me in the Scriptures of some examples wherein the answer may appear to be rather obvious. In the days of the Old Testament, we remember that the children of Israel enjoyed a very special relationship, a fellowship, if you will, with God. Did He not promise them in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, that He would dwell with them in that temple? He would meet with them in that, on that location? In other passages, such as Exodus chapter 25, he said, I'll meet with thee on the mercy seat between the cherubims. God was meeting with them. When that high priest would go on the day of atonement into that most holy place, and there on that one day of the year, he was in fact representative of the fellowship that the children of Israel enjoyed with their Creator, with their Maker. We notice, though, in Deuteronomy 7 that the children of Israel were warned that that fellowship is to be closely guarded. They were not to share that with the other nations round about, for it did not belong to them. To that extent, the children of Israel were told, you have, in effect, nothing to do by using their gods or intermarrying with those evil individuals of the land of Canaan. The fellowship was not to extend, you say? And did we not see other examples in the Old Testament of the same? that great man Joshua, who was the successor to Moses. We remember that, in fact, shortly before he died in Joshua 23, one of the last reminders that he gave to Israel, that fellowship that you enjoy is a very special and highly prized entity and it is not to be shared with and you are not to extend that to those who are not God's chosen people. That statement was a very strong admonition to the children of Israel, wasn't it? But as we turn the page into the New Testament, we understand that God's chosen people are those who've been born by water and the Spirit. John 3, verses 3 through 5. That His people are those who, in fact, have had their sins washed away and wear the name of His Son, Christians. It does remind us, though, to think about the extent of that fellowship. I've listed some passages for our consideration. One of them was read in our hearing just a few moments ago. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18, there the inspired apostle expressly said, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And as certainly as we may have perhaps tried to misunderstand, he goes on to say in the verses that follow, The fact that Christ and Belial don't have fellowship, light and darkness have no fellowship. In fact, that communion that's enjoyed is only with that of its light character. That challenges us then to understand that you and I as blessed lights for the Lord, those who Jesus described in Matthew 5 as a city set on a hill and a candle that's not covered up, we appreciate that we too are a shining light for the Lord as Christians And as such, we must be cautious and careful about allowing to extend a fellowship to go too far in a sense of Christian fellowship. Could we extend that to those who, for instance, do not hold certain beliefs about the Bible? What about an individual who thinks it not necessary to be baptized for the remission of sins? Could we extend Christian fellowship as though we were in agreement with that individual on all points, including that one? Or what about that individual who is not confident and assured that in fact there even is a God in heaven? Could we extend Christian fellowship to an individual like that? Our question is not whether we can hopefully teach or influence, our question is can we extend Christian fellowship? Perhaps we've already begun to appreciate that that very statement in 2 Corinthians 6 would suggest no. Let's look at some other passages as well before we come to our conclusion. In Ephesians 5, verse 11, we notice in that interesting text, a rather brief verse, Paul simply there remarked, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. I wonder what darkness represents. We had just read a moment ago that light and darkness have no communion. It's no wonder then that Paul asserts that we're to have no fellowship with those unfruitful works of darkness. As we read that chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, we learn that some of the activities that were described as darkness are those very matters that are in transgression of the will of God. Things like uncleanness and fornication and things that will be other sinful natures such as in verse 3 and verses 6 and 7 of that chapter. But as Paul has described all of them, he urged the Christians of that day and by inspiration us as well to realize that our fellowship must be closely guarded. It must be prized very, very highly. Not only that text, in First Thessalonians 5, verse 22, Paul there said, abstain from every appearance of evil. As you and I contemplate evil, he had just stated and would in fact confirm in that chapter that we must prove all things and hold to that which is good. With regard to fellowship, that same idea holds true, doesn't it? Notice also in Titus 3 verse 9, one of the duties of the elder is to hold fast the faithful word as he had been delivered to him and to be able to convince the gainsayers in regard to those things falsely that they had stated or believed that strongly suggests that the elders not just to grant Christian fellowship as though everything were acceptable to God, for it isn't. It's no wonder that that first century church, its fellowship was closely commended with regard to being guarded, and the same is true for you and me even today. In 2 John verses 9 through 11, we encounter what may be one of the most stinging of all the passages that touch this subject. It is a text that evermore challenges you and me to be aware of that which we consider concerning fellowship. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds if you and I, thus, were to extend fellowship in a way or to those who, in fact, would be in violation of the will of God and who would, in fact, encourage and teach that, we are as guilty as they are. We become partaker of that which they are doing. You and I, then, as we support missionaries, be they in this country or elsewhere, you can begin to see why our elders and others who are knowledgeable of that matter take such great pains to be sure of what they're teaching, to have a high degree of confidence that that which they are speaking is the revealed will of God and nothing more. Because, you see, if we partake in that which is evil, if we in fact allow ourselves to be guilty of such, then as here the inspired writer informed us, we become partaker of that. Isn't it a fascinating thing on the one hand to see the opportunities, but on the other hand, the close fellowship that must be guarded? That idea of fellowship, of course, relates to the very matter of church discipline, doesn't it? This very idea, perhaps, comes full circle. What does it mean when you and I read of those passages in the New Testament in which a person who walked disorderly, command was given to disfellowship him or her? That alone teaches that fellowship must be closely guarded. To that person who was in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Recall what occurred there. As Paul wrote to that congregation, he was very much disturbed in mind by the fact that there was open sin in the life of one of the members of that congregation. And uh, there had been no rebuke of him. He had not been disfellowshipped. And Paul very sternly stated that in order to safeguard the purity of the church, in order to safeguard, in fact, the soul and spirit that needed to be done, And thus, Paul admonished the same to occur. The entirety of 1 Corinthians 5 discusses that subject and that that very point. To to think then even about the matter of fellowship and how that even disfellowshipping may in fact be done and is in accordance to the will of God brings us to other texts where the same is discussed. I listed the church in Corinth. Perhaps the church in Thessalonica is just as strong an example. In the third chapter of that book, 2 Thessalonians 3, note the express command that's given in verse 6 of that chapter. Commandments are always those things that catch our attention. When God, for instance, stated in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not kill, that was very plain, wasn't it? But yet the Scriptures, even in the New Testament, present many commandments, and here's one of them, to that church in Thessalonica, Paul, by inspiration, wrote, "...withdraw yourself from that ungodly fellow, from that person who walks not orderly after the way that's been received." We note, though, that Paul's words in that way, his commandment, by inspiration, had with it two principal aims and two principal intents. First, we noted this in the Corinthians text, "...to save the soul in the day of judgment." Paul's intent, his hope for that person in Corinth was that by withdrawing fellowship, that one would come to an understanding of the sinfulness of his way. He would come to understand what he has lost in Christian fellowship and also in fellowship with God. And in his response to that understanding, he would repent of that sin and make things right. However, another point that Paul noted, was the purity, safeguarding the purity of the Lord's body. It's well been stated that you and I should strive to keep the Lord's spiritual body as purely as He kept His physical body while on earth, the beautiful body of Christ. The idea of this fellowship, and though it may seem so harsh, it is nonetheless sanctioned by the Bible, and as such we have every right to pursue it in the way that God has commanded. The thought of it itself is certainly a great idea to safeguard the fellowship and always make sure it goes not beyond where it is in fact ought to go. I've listed at the bottom of that screen the fact that Jesus himself gave the procedure that should be utilized in the pursuit of that fellowship. It isn't based upon personal opinion. It's not that one person doesn't like another and hence pursues Proceeds to persuade the elders to disfellowship. That is not the way that works, is it? All those difficulties. First, if it's a personal issue, Jesus said you go to the one yourself first. But if he will not hear you, then you take a couple of witnesses and do the same. If he will not hear them, then you bring it to the church. Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. If that is pursued and proceeded. Those difficulties that would arise, that would perhaps break fellowship, would never rise to the surface. They'd be taken care of. They'd be handled in a way that'd be right, and in a way where that fellowship could be maintained, and the church could remain without division, without faction. As we've thought this afternoon about fellowship, we've been challenged time and again to think about where that has come from and where it will lead us. The fellowship that we enjoy as we come to the conclusion of this particular lesson, the last winter installment, that fellowship is such a precious thing. Recently we've enjoyed three baptisms, and as those were happened, those persons' names were enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life, And as they were then able to rightly wear the name Christian, they begun for the first time to enjoy fellowship with God and fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, what a sad existence it is to be without that fellowship. To not have that beautiful and guiding communion and close relationship with God and with other fellow believers. Perhaps there's one or more in this audience that doesn't have that fellowship. That communion is not vouchsafed to you. You realize that as Christians, it does lead us to realize one of the elements of the matter of worship, sometimes called the communion, the Lord's Supper. There we have the grand opportunity of communing because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And he promised it to those that would be in his kingdom. Are you a member of the kingdom, the blessed church, the body of Christ? If you have not come to that point in your life and you know that there's sin in your life, you've reached that age. Let this afternoon be the time that we could assist you in a public way to obey the Lord. You need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess his master's name as the one and only Son of God, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If we could aid you in doing that, what a grand and precious thing that would be. But if you have, but you haven't maintained the unity of that fellowship, you have ignored it or neglected it, you haven't placed it as a high and precious honor, you need to come back to that first love, for the fact that that fellowship is now broken is not God's fault. He is always where he has been, and you're the one that's moved away from him. Come back to that first love. The church in Ephesus needed to do that in Revelation 2. We could assist you personally in doing the same. If we could help you in any way publicly to obey the Lord today, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.